And tonight I'm going to talk about the second of those topics that we added into our kind of core statement of who we are. And that is this concept of justice and what does the role of justice look like in the life of the community at River's Edge. So if you have a Bible, I'm going to ask you to open it up. Or if you have a Bible app, open your app up to Micah, the book of Micah. It's an Old Testament prophet, one of the prophetic books in the Old Testament. And these are pretty famous words in the prophetic literature. Some of you have already heard Micah 6, 8 before. It's one of those phrases that has been set to memory for many people who have been kind of walking in what it looks like to live out this life that God has called us to. And Micah gives us these words in Micah uh, chapter 6, verse 8. He says this, he says, He has shown you, O mortal or O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Think about those phrases for a minute. To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Have you ever really thought about what it means to act justly as a follower of Jesus? Have you thought about what it means that God is calling us to as a gathered community to act and to live a life of justice? Because sometimes we get things kind of confused because the Old Testament understanding of justice is a little bit different than how we might look at justice today. Tim Keller wrote a book called Gracious Justice. And in his book, he says this. He says, if a person has grasped the meaning of God's grace in his heart, he will do justice. If he doesn't live justly, then he may say with his lips that he is grateful for God's grace, but in his heart, he is far from him. And if he doesn't care about the poor, it reveals that at best, he doesn't understand the grace he has experienced. And at worst, listen to this, has not really encountered the saving mercy of God. Grace should make you just. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about these themes of righteousness and justice. Because the themes of righteousness and justice that Micah talks about in the beginning of that little phrase, Micah 6, 8, to act justly, these themes of righteousness and justice, we have to understand what they mean because they're woven into God's plan of redemption, his plan of salvation, and the promise that God had poured out through the early pages of Scripture in the life of Abraham is a clear example and image of what that righteousness and justice looks like from God's perspective. I'm really excited that next week we get to start on a journey for some time through the book of Matthew. Because for one reason, I, I know that Matt and Matt are really excited about Matthew for obvious reasons, right? Their namesake book. But for another reason, it's because some of these themes are going to be expanded and blown up. We're going to get a little bit of a snapshot tonight of what righteousness and justice looks like. But Matt will be talking about, and Matt Karsh and Matt Deason and myself and perhaps others we'll be talking about throughout the course of this next year what it looks like to live out these themes that God is placing before us. We'll look about what it means to really live life in the Spirit, life as a follower of Jesus, as a disciple of Jesus. Tonight we're going to expand that thought, that image, or, or that thought of what justice looks like. So if you want to think about the I guess if you, from one standpoint, we need to kind of go back to the beginning before we step into the understanding of what God did with Abraham. Genesis 1.1, which we're probably all familiar with, says what? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? Goes on to say, and it was very good. He, he saw that what he had created was good. It was very good in his eyes. And so all that he had created was good. The world early on was in this good place. And John Mark Homer, who's one of the um, preaching pastors or preaching teachers in uh, the Jesus Church Family Network, calls this whole state of living shalom, the state of peace. It's living in the abundance of God. It's living in this, 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 this place of tranquility and, and peace where 
where Adam and Eve were walking in God's presence. They were walking in relationship and in communion with God, and everything was at, was at peace. I don't know if you've ever experienced anything close to that in your life. Perhaps not. I remember when um, my children were born. One in particular. I wasn't able to be in the, the operating room with Brooke. Actually, I was with my wife, but I wasn't on the other end of the birth, I guess, if you want to call it that. I remember with my daughter, Sarah, uh, when, she, when she was born, she was, she was breached, she was kind of turned around backwards, and so she had to be born as a C-section. So the nurse pulled her out, and about one minute old, kind of put her in this little container and said, here, just help clean her up while we take care of your wife. I remember being in this complete state of utter awe that, that God had created, that we had been a part of creating this beautiful creation, this little child, and I have three beautiful children, Brooks, there and Coulter. I remember seeing clearly what that looked like, and that's probably the closest place that I can remember in myself, in my own life, that place of peace. And it doesn't even come close to what Adam and Eve were experiencing when they were walking with their creator in the garden completely devoid of any separation with God. Because you know the story in chapter 3, in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, they make this fateful decision. They eat from the tree. And suddenly, this disease called sin is introduced into the relationship. And because of this disease called sin, God has to separate Adam and Eve from his presence. Because God is righteous, and he is just, and he is wholly good, he has to be separated out from the presence of anything that is sinful. And so there's a, there's a verse at the end of, of Genesis chapter 3, I believe it is, that says, 3.23, So God banished him, banished Adam and Eve from the garden to work the ground from which they had been taken. So suddenly, this beautiful relationship of complete and utter tranquility and peace that Adam and Eve had experienced from the beginning of their time with God was over. And they were separate. What happened was injustice was introduced into the world. Because the exact opposite of this peaceful, tranquil, completely as God intended it to be relationship, is how we find many places, many relationships in the world today filled with injustice. It's as if the world's not supposed, it's not as it's supposed to be. And any of you who have traveled around the world and been to some places, third world countries we call them sometimes, you've seen that face to face. You know what that looks like. My son Coulter and I just got back in the middle of September from the Philippines. And there's wonderful, beautiful people and places in the Philippines, the Philippine Islands. But there are areas that are completely full of injustice. When people work 12, 14, 16 hours a day, what amounts to about two American dollars, doing hard manual labor. And what we would spend at a Starbucks on our way to church on a Sunday afternoon they might have to work a day or two in order to create the same kind of economic privilege that we live in. See, there's injustice in the world. You look at the situation in Africa and the areas of Africa that have been hit by the AIDS epidemic. A year ago, I was in South Africa. And in the center of South Africa is a landlocked country called Lesotho. And Lesotho has been ravaged by the AIDS pandemic. And so people and men who are in families go off to Johannesburg to work in the mines. They are away from their family, and for obvious reasons, they find themselves doing things that they shouldn't be doing. They bring disease back to their wife and their family, not even knowing that they have it. So suddenly the wife is infected with the HIV virus. It then spreads through the village. It spreads into the children. And there are 60, 70% of 
people and population groups in some of these areas that are suffering in great measure from AIDS. One of my great friends, Gavin Northcote, who lives in an area just outside of Lesotho, they've developed and put together through his church this ministry called People of Hope. And the whole point of People of Hope is just to be a care team to go into these villages and to go into these towns where people are living and dying on their own, in their home, with no help, with no medical resources, nothing, going in and just being Christ to them. Just doing simple things like bringing a cold cup of water and doing simple things like helping them find some medical care if they can, if it's even available, and assessing where they are in the disease progression so perhaps someone who's coming to help them could actually help them. See, this is what injustice has done in our world created these situations. You know, there's probably half of the world's population that lives in this state of injustice. It's one of the reasons why we're so passionate about it here at River's Edge. Because injustice is not the way God wanted it to be. So what happened? Back to the Genesis story. Genesis, or God has banished Adam and Eve from the garden we go through this series of, of, of man and humanity working towards being better, and then they fall even further, and there's a, there talks about the flood coming and God deciding to wipe out all of his creation, but he saves a few through Noah, and we continue on through this whole progression until finally God decides that it's time for him to act on our behalf, on humanity's behalf. And in Genesis chapter 12, God says this, the Lord said to Abram, leave your country, your people, your father's household, go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And among all peoples on the earth, all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. You'd notice a common theme in that little paragraph there? Blessing, right? God's chosen to bless us. He chose to bless Abraham. He chose to bless the people who would become the people of God through Abraham, and we get to enter into that relationship because each of us who is a follower of Jesus get to enter into that blessing. Do you realize that you were blessed to be a blessing? You ever thought about that? God has blessed you. Where you find yourself right now sitting here tonight in Spokane, Washington, October 16th, about 5.30 in the evening, God has blessed you in such a way that you are able to be here. You're a people of privilege. You're a people of purpose. You're in communities. You're in college and university. You have uh, families that you've grown up with. We are people of privilege. God has blessed us. And what God is calling us to realize is that we were blessed to be a blessing. Pass that on. Be a part of what that looks like around the world. And that's why we are so passionate about that here at River's Edge. God says on, further on in Genesis chapter 18, the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? This is when he is about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay? He makes this statement. He says, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation. All the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. Back to the blessing, right? We're part of that, all the nations. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. What did the Lord promise Abraham. Blessing. Be blessed, right? Two conditions that are attached to that. I don't know if you noticed that in that particular paragraph. The Lord said, I have chosen him so that he will first direct his children. So part of the blessing is to be fruitful and multiply. Remember what God said to Adam and Eve in the garden? Really only one command, other than not, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
be fruitful and multiply. In other words, take over the earth through your, your bounty, through your children, through your offspring. So God says, I have chosen him so that he will direct his children. How's that going to happen? It's going to happen because we are a part of that blessing. You know, it's God's heart that every child would be blessed. God's heart that every child would grow up with an Abraham-like father, being able to direct that blessing in their life. But one of the things that Matt and Matt have talked about in the past that we're passionate about here at River's Edge is that we want to reach out to refugee groups and we want to reach out to orphans and we want to reach out in opportunities to adopt people through adoption and things like that. Because there are so many children in the United States and especially here in Spokane that grow up without fathers. They grow up without that loving father relationship. It's worse around the world. Especially if you factor in the whole AIDS pandemic in Africa, there's, there's, whole, there's whole groups of villages that are simply children because all the mothers and the fathers have died. And so there's children that grow up in these refugee camps because they don't have mothers and fathers, or they don't grow up in refugee camps at all. They just grow up begging for food to survive, two and three and four years old. If you go to Mumbai, India, and you go into one of the largest uh, cities and one of the largest population centers in the, in the whole country of India, India, and you go driving down the street, you will see some of these little two- and three- and four-year-olds coming up and banging on the window, begging, crying for food. God's heart is for children. The second part that God says through this verse is that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. What is right and just. Righteousness and justice. It's part of God's original plan. Dr. Gary Bashirs is a friend of River's Edge and the Jesus Church Family Network, and he helps us here in this understanding of what righteousness and justice looks like. When we think of righteousness and justice in America, we think of somebody who keeps the rules. Somebody does the right thing, right? Does the right thing. I have, a, I have an uncle who was an, a school teacher and administrator down in Texas. He told us, you know, I just tell my students and my teachers, do the right thing and do it all the time. You won't get in trouble, right? That's kind of the picture we have of righteousness. Just do the right thing and do it all the time. When we think of justice, we might think of a picture of a police officer arresting someone. They've done something wrong. Then they have to go through the penal system. They have to go before a judge, and the judge makes a judgment and says, all right, you didn't do what was right. So the justice that's going to be ruled, you know, kind of dispensed out to you is whatever it might be, probation, 30 days in jail, who knows what it is. God speaks to us through this righteousness and justice, though, in many ways through Scripture. I want to take you through, I hope, what would be a helpful and quick kind of look through what this theme of righteousness and justice looks like. Using kind of this Psalm 146 as a framework, just listen to this as I read through this. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. Do not put your trust in princes, immortal men who cannot save. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground. On the very day their plans come to nothing. But blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them, the Lord who remains faithful forever. And listen to this, because this is the part of the important part of it. He upholds the cause of the oppressed, and he gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind, and the Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous says. He watches over the aliens and sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the way of the wicked. The Lord reigns forever. 
your God, O Zion, for generations. He upholds the cause of the oppressed. And he gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. You see how God treats that passage? How David, as he's, preach, as, as he's um, um, speaking out this psalm, how he acknowledges what is important to God and why it's important to us here at River's Edge and why it should be important to us as followers of Jesus to listen to these words. He upholds the cause of the oppressed, gives food to the hungry. By God's grace, I've never really had to be hungry in my life. I've gone through a few, yeah, I know you look at me and you say, oh, you don't miss too many meals, right? Okay, you can laugh, true. But by God's grace, I haven't really had to be hungry. I haven't really known what hunger is. I haven't known the place where a, a handful of rice a day, I would be truly thankful because I knew that that day God had given me my daily bread. Because I knew that that day God had provided for me to have something to eat. But I know a lot of people who are in that place. And I know a lot of people who are thankful for what they have and for what God has given them. And that's why we're so passionate about righteousness and justice and causes of injustice here at River's Edge. Because we really believe that the gospel was, was put forth to bring that, that sense of equality and that sense of, of uh, tranquility back into the relationship between humanity and God's creation, between God and his creation. Deuteronomy chapter 10 says this, And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve him, and to love and to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today. Okay, what are those those commands and decrees? They are they are at the bottom. It says, "The Lord your God is a God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow." He loves the foreigner residing among you, giving him food and clothing. That's what God cares about. He cares about the people who are the oppressed. He cares about the people who are the fatherless. He cares about the people who are the poor and the indigent and the people who are on the peripheral parts of society. Over and over and over again in Scripture, God comes back to this because it's important to him. We can look at all the passages of Scripture that talk about blessing. We can talk about how God wants to have us live in a place of abundance. But if we overlook the fact that righteousness and justice, especially social justice, in the context of helping the people around us who are in need, if we overlook that, we've missed the whole point. Moving on to the book of Job, we see a picture of a righteous man. Job is described as so righteous by God that Satan decides to destroy him. Right? And God gives him a little chance at doing that. And Job in Job 29 kind of describes himself. He says, because I rescued the poor who cried for help, the fatherless who had none to assist him, the man who was dying blessed me. I made the widow's heart sing I put on righteousness as my clothing, and justice was my robe. By putting on righteousness and justice in the form of helping the people around him, he recognizes the fact that God blessed him. And that blessing came from God because of that. If you were to look at the next section of Scripture, the Scripture, the first section of the prophets in Isaiah chapter 1, starting in verse 10. 
Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah, what is that all about? Remember back in the earlier stages of Genesis, God had to wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah because of their sin, because of their injustice with people. So God, through Isaiah, is referring to the people of God now during the the 8th century B.C. as people who are in the same state of affairs as those who God was going to destroy. He says, hear the word of the Lord. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says God? I have more than enough burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fatted animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incest is detestable to me. New moons and Sabbaths and convocations, I cannot bear your evil assemblies. What is he saying? He's saying all of the acts that you do, all of the religious acts that you're doing, you're bringing offerings, you're doing festivals, you're following the rules, right? You're acting or pretending to act righteously by doing this. All of this is detestable in my sight. Why? It's not in your heart. What is it to a rich person to bring a fatted goat or a ram or even a bull to sacrifice before the Lord if they're not taking care of the people, the foreigner in their land that's around them. Nothing to God. In fact, God says it's detestable in my sight. Makes me want to be sick. Verse 15, your hands are full of blood. All this offering and all this sacrifice that you're bringing me, yeah, your hands are full of blood because you're sacrificing animals, but your hands are full of the blood of the innocent people that are dying around you because you're not doing anything about it. Doing nothing to help my people. Isaiah 116, wash and make yourself clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. See, righteousness and justice doing what is right and doing what is just is part of what God is calling us to do. So what is God saying to us here? Saying all the church activities, all the religious ritual becomes meaningless and hateful if our religious activities don't do what God is calling us to do. To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before our God. If our religious actions don't make the same sound or look like the same offering to God as our life actions, what are they to God? The word says they're detestable. You don't get up in the morning and have a quiet time and read a scripture and go to church on Sunday night and attend a missional community in the middle of the week if throughout the week or throughout the course of our life we're trampling over in ways of injustice people that are important to God. We're stepping over the fatherless. We're overlooking the foreigner in our land. It's why injustice is so important to God and it's why the whole concept of justice is so important to us here at River's Edge. We don't gather together just to 
have a great group on Sunday nights to be with and have nice, really nice coffee, thanks to Amy. Thank you, Amy. And cookies. We gather together because God has necessarily changed us in our hearts and from the inside out caused us to be a new type of people. People who belong to God. A a people who outpour the very character of God by who they are, by how they act, by what they do. It's why it's so important to God. The Lord is calling his people who have lost the way of righteousness and justice in Isaiah to share with others, to share with the fatherless, to share with the oppressed, the widow and the orphan. And he's calling us to live this life of Yahweh or this life of being right and just, the way of the Lord at River's Edge, to do it just as much. The book of Amos, a a humble prophet in the minor prophets. Amos chapter 2, this is what the Lord says, For three sins of Judah, even four, I will not turn my back, my wrath, because they have rejected the law of the Lord. So Judah and Israel at this point, during Amos as a prophet, Judah and Israel are divided. Divided kingdom, if you know the Old Testament, right? So the kingdom is divided, and Judah is worshiping false gods. They've been led astray by false false gods. Their gods, their ancestors followed. I will send fire upon Judah. So God is saying, "I'm I'm going to bring judgment on Judah because of their actions. He said, this is what the Lord says. For three sins of Israel, so Judah and Israel, right? At the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Judah and Israel, for three sins of Israel, even four, I will not turn back my wrath. They sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as upon the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. All kinds of righteousness that God is calling them to, and they're living a life of injustice. And what does God say? I'm not going to turn my wrath if you don't change your ways. If you don't become what I have called you to become, if you don't become who I have created you to be, I will bring judgment upon you. Skip down to chapter 6 in Amos. Woe to you who are complacent in Zion, to you who feel secure on Mount Samaria, the notable men of the foremost nation. Who's the foremost nation in the world today? I think it's the United States. Go anywhere in the world, it's the United States. You go to the Philippines, You go to South Africa, you go to Central America. I don't care where you go, for the most part, with few exceptions, the United States is the foremost nation on the face of the earth today. These aren't just words for 2,500 years ago. These are words for us today. You notable people of the foremost nation. To whom the people of Israel come. You lie in, on beds inlaid with ivory and lounge on your couches. You dine on choice lambs and fatted calves. You strum away on your harps like David. Listen to your worship songs on improvised musical instruments. You drink wine by the bowlful and use the finest lotions. What, what is the nation doing? What are they addicted to? Stuff, right? Material goods. We consume more material goods than any other nation on the face of the earth. And for at least 50 years, the United States has used, as I guess has not only used, but has turned aside to the injustice that has been brought upon other nations to fuel our frenzy, to fuel our greed. It's it's not a lot different than what Rome was facing in the third and fourth century. 
what probably was the biggest downfall of the Roman Empire. Stuff. It's the middle of October, and there's already Christmas stuff out in stores, right? You know that over the Thanksgiving week, the United States will spend in excess of $300 billion, I think it is. $300 billion to buy stuff, to shop on Black Friday. Ever go out on Black Friday? Crazy. The reason it's called Black, I think. It's like, it's like a wicked day. <laughs> I don't know. I'd rather pay more than go out on that day. Then every time I go out, everything's already gone that I wanted in the first place. You ever notice that? They have one of the thing. It's like a bait and switch or something. I don't know. Some of the places that I looked at in, in kind of working through this this week have, estimate that over a trillion dollars will be spent through the holiday season in the United States in retail. Trillion dollars. That's a lot of money, huh? Trillion dollars to buy stuff. And just so you know that I'm not standing up here teaching you guys something that's not wrecked me this week. This is completely changing the way I view how my life should be lived. Because I like to stop at Starbucks, get a coffee in the morning when I'm going to work. Then I start thinking about my friends who are going to work all day long, weeding or laboring. In fact, they'll work two full days of hard labor to equate to that one cup of coffee. Three days if it's like one of those fancy fall drinks or whatever it is. I don't know. Cinnamon, nutmeg, something. It has to change who we are. It has to change how we live. It has to change how we view what God has given us. A wise friend of mine who lives in Africa, he's a South African. He's a white South African. He grew up in the whole apartheid um, problem that was created in 48, not ended until 96. This 40, 50 years. In fact, pretty much his entire life, he grew up in this apartheid understanding. Not his fault. It's what he grew up in. He's devoted the last 18 years of his life to try to undo the injustice that he didn't even cause. We went over a year ago, and we're going to help this church, and I've shared with some of you in the summer about Sepong Church in Manyat Seng, South Africa, in the Free State. Alifa Kolasang, who's a gardener and a pastor, gathered some people together and we had raised a little bit of money. We were able to buy a building. We were able to convert it into a church. Now that church has become a light on the hill within that neighborhood. My friend Gavin shared with me, don't despise what God has given you. God has given you wonderful things. Don't feel bad that you have what you have. But realize that what you have is a gift from God. And realize that what you have can be used for God's kingdom and for his purposes. And so we want to hold on to what God gives us loosely. We want to realize that everything we have from our, in our life is gift from God. And as we hold on to that gift, we have an opportunity to allow God to use it for his purposes so that his kingdom can come here in Spokane. You know, it might come in the, in the person that is in your dorm room, right across the hall, who's hurting and who's in a difficult place and needs you to be the person that God wants to use to bring hope into their life. Because resources aren't just money. Don't hear that. Resources are time. Resources are relationship. Resources are friendship. You spend any time with the homeless down in the inner city, you realize that the gift of a touch 
to people who don't ever even feel a little rub on the side of their arm can be a huge blessing to people. God has gifted all of us in such an amazing way. He's calling us to understand what that gift looks like and to be able to be available to use it for his glory. Two Hebrew words that I probably taught right past earlier. Harsh is laughing at me back there. <laughs> right and just. Mishpat and Sedekah. You can't go through Old Testament Hebrew without understanding those two words. But those two words, really, are, are so integrally woven into what God calls his people to do and be that we need to understand that. Righteousness, mishpat. You say mishpat? Mishpat? Sedekah? Remember the tzitzit fly? It was popular about 10, 20 years ago. That's tzedakah. Righteousness and justice. Tzedakah is a whole Jewish teaching from the Old Testament scriptures, from there, from Jesus' Bible, the Old Testament. There's a whole teaching on tzedakah, which, which in today's vernacular really works itself out in the form of understanding as charity. It's It's charity. It's using what God has given us in the form of justice to be charitable, to be graceful, to live that life in a way that we, we realize that what God has given us isn't ours, it's his. And so we give because he gave to us. We reach out because he reached out to us on the cross. Back to Micah 6, 8. Really, what the life of this Mishpat and Sedekah look like. It's acting justly and loving mercy and walking in humility. Being available to do just that in our own lives. And that's exactly what Jesus did. See, Jesus lived a righteous and just life. Because he lived a righteous and just life, God was willing to accept his sacrifice on a cross so that we could have the opportunity to live a righteous and just life through him. Through what Matt talked about last week, life in the spirit. Through those promptings of listening to the spirit when we're walking by someone, instead of stepping over or going around them, reaching out and saying, hey friend, you need a hand. Matthew chapter 6, as we wrap things up here, Matthew chapter 6, a famous session or section of Matthew called the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has these words. He says, Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men, not to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets. When you give to the needy, he talks about giving, he talks about prayer, and he talks about fasting in that little section. But for some reason, Jesus says that giving, not just giving, by the way, it's not just giving, it's giving to the needy. Very specific. It's giving to those who don't have in order for them to receive and to experience the graciousness and the generosity of God in their own lives. That's what Jesus is calling us to do. He says, be careful not to practice your acts of righteousness. Oh, that's exactly what we talked about in Micah chapter 6, right? The acts of righteousness, acting justly, and living a life of mercy and humility. Be careful not to practice your acts of righteousness. Why? Because it's not about practicing and doing. It's about what's in our heart. It's about being available to listen to the promptings of the Holy Spirit and acting on them. That's what we see in the early church. A few weeks back, I think Karsh spoke from Acts 2.42. Acts 2.42. 
probably every church in America has preached a sermon on Acts 2.42 and taught on it. It says in Acts 2.42, the early church met together often for the apostles' teaching and for fellowship and for breaking bread and for prayer, those four things. In fact, those are very important things to us here at River's Edge. Very true. It says everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and held everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Very famous passage of Scripture. And right in the middle of it, it says what? It says this. It says they sold what they had and they gave to anyone who had need. In other words, they held what they had loosely and they realized that what God has given me is to be used for his kingdom to come in my life and in the life of people around me. A little bit further in Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 32, it says, All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own. They shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them, in them all, that there were no needy people among them. Quick story to end. 18 years ago, a good friend of mine, Steve Oliver, lived in Cape Town, South Africa. Very successful businessman. He took his family on a vacation to this place called Clarence. Be like taking your family here to Schweitzer or someplace around. Nice place to go, right? To get away from it. This is about the time that apartheid was breaking apart. And being a good Christian man, follower of Jesus, a believer in what Jesus said, he decided to go out to some of the local village people and to share the gospel. Good news. He came up on this young, this old man sitting on the steps of his house or hut or whatever you want to call it. His name was Japila in the Sutu. Very old man. Shared the gospel with him. The old man looked at him and he said, that's all well and good, Steve, but that's the white man's gospel. That's the white man's God. Not for me. See, for 50 years, he had bought into oppression and injustice and the reality that he was not worth as much as the person that lived across the river in the city. Steve came back the next day after staying up all night, crying out to God, and he, God had given him this, this picture of how there's this in, in uh, Ephesians chapter 2, Paul talks about there being this new humanity, one new man in Christ. Right? The dividing wall of hostility has been broken down. And the Holy Spirit touches Japila's heart. He gives his life to the Lord. Steve is very excited. Goes off, takes his family at the end of the week back down to Cape Town and comes up six months later. And Japila has heard that he's there. He comes up to him and goes, Steve, Steve, where have you been? So many people that need to hear the gospel. So many people that need to hear about Jesus. Pila calls together, the, he's, he's led like 40 or 50 people. He's shared the gospel with 40 or 50 people. So, so Steve feels compelled to sell his business, to move to this area. He bought a ranch. And they started preparing for what God was going to call them to do. They had this barn on the ranch, and they prayed, and they, they did listening prayer together. One of the things we're going to do here shortly together. And in that listening prayer, they said that they felt like the Holy Spirit said, prepare for 500. They're laughing. Are you kidding? 500? You just got here. 
they trusted God, cleaned out the barn, they set up hay bales, and when Sunday came, 550 people showed up. 75 people gave their life to the Lord. That became the beginnings of a church called Dishlebang Church in Clarence, South Africa, where white South Africans and people of color from the Lesotho Nation and the Free State and South Africa and whoever is welcome to come because God has called us together, together, to live life together. It's completely changed the region to the point where that entire region now is known as the Dishlebang region, named after the church. In that dialect of that area, it means hope. It means people of hope. It's transformed the whole area because a few people understood what it meant to live a life of righteousness and justice. And not just righteousness and justice on paper or in the Bible or, or through an app or through discussion, but actually living it out in their lives. That's what our heart is for here at River's Edge. Our heart here at River's Edge is that we would see that kind of life worked out. That's why we're passionate about doing and being righteous and just, about Mishpat and Sedekah here at River's Edge. That's why for the past 10 Fridays, we go down to Franklin Park and we reach out to refugees, to the foreigners and the youth and the children in our land. We play soccer with them. Why? Because we're going to get something out of it? Nope. Because God has called us to love the oppressed and to love the people who other people in society might call unlovely. But God is simply calling children. Just reaching out to them, to the, the foreigners in your land, the poor and the vulnerable, the orphans, the abandoned, letting them know someone loves them, someone is passionate about them, that their lives matter to God. Because God is a God of what? Mishpat and Tzedakah, of righteousness and justice. That's why 10% of every dollar we receive at River's Edge goes to international missions and outreach opportunities both locally and globally through Hear the Cry or through Regions Beyond or through other opportunities we have to actually act in ways that are righteous because we believe this, because we believe that it's important enough to do it. And it's our hope that this week when you meet together in your missional communities, that this whole concept of righteousness and justice, this whole concept of mishpat and tzedakah would be your guide, that the way of the Lord, um, if by walking in this way of the Lord, we would together create opportunities for this righteousness and justice to be lived out in our lives, in our communities, in our relationships.